0: This is The David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Welcome to The David Dole Show, your rational look at news politics and culture, right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. I, of course, am your host, David Dole, and coming up on today's show, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh's by-election in Burnaby South is just a week away. I'll dive into the race and take your calls on what you'd like to see from the NDP. Also, shattering the idea that millennials are lazy, new data shows that a record number of young adults are simply not being paid enough to afford housing or rent. And later on in the show, Amazon cancels their plans in New York after refusing to have a discussion about workers' rights. All that and more coming up on The David Dole Show. But first, I'm joined in studio by Andre Dumise. He is a contributing editor at McLean's Magazine and the author of the Washington Post opinion piece titled Canada is Not the World's Moral Leader. Just look at our newest scandal. Andre, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So uh, we were talking before we got on air about your piece sort of shatters two different ideas. The idea that Trudeau is this kind of far leftist Mm -hmm. and the idea that Canada is this moral leader. So coming at this, so you referenced a New York Times piece. So kind of discuss this this weird idea that Americans have about how Canada is sort of this, this leader now that Trump is kind of you know, well, it it's,
1: it predates Trump, I think, by by quite a stretch. I think it actually goes back to the uh, the George W. Bush years. I lived in the U.S. Uh, for several years, and you know, people would ask me when I was there, you know, oh, you know, isn't Canada so much better? Why wouldn't you want to go back there? I mean, you guys have free health care, and there's no racism, and they just they would just like list off everything that was bad about the United States, and then be able to find a counterpoint in Canada. And I'd have to explain to them like this is this is not your utopia. And I, I think. Unfortunately, what Nicholas Kristof, the author of that uh, New York Times piece, did was operate off of that rubric of Canada being this social utopia that the United States should aspire to. and it's it's lazy and it's 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 pedestrian. Mm-hmm. If you look at the problems that we have in this country, we've got, you know, a, a problem with income inequality, We've got problems with racial disparity. We've got problems that, that are gendered. We've got problems that have to do with uh, trans communities. I mean, we've got the very much the same problems as the United States. As a matter of fact, I would say one thing they do better, though, is that they are able to track what the problems are. They have enough data to back up and say, well, here, here are the discrepancies between the dominant culture and marginalized communities, mm-hmm. whereas in Canada we don't do that. So to say that we're a moral leader, like we can't even figure out how bad our problems are to be
0: able to solve them. You, you can't claim moral leadership until you can do that. So do you think that's the source of this misinformation? Because I do find that even our own media – we almost aren't as critical, or we definitely aren't as critical as we should be about what is happening in our own country. Do you think that that's the reason why there is this mis- this misconception uh, through uh, Americans and and even other countries? Oh about my gosh, Canada? we've we've had this problem for. I mean, it it, it
1: practically predates uh, the, the Confederacy. Like, the the um, we don't like to look at ourselves. We like to look at ourselves in relation to. Uh, so you know, uh, in the post World War One period we looked at ourselves very much in relation to the mess that was uh, post-war Europe. We look at ourselves in, uh, in relation to uh, post-Civil uh, War United States. We've, we have a very difficult time um, exercising introspection in this country. Mm-hmm. right? So, And what I'm looking at right now and what I try to look at through this piece is how can we claim moral leadership, for example, when there seems to be basically two tracks to the justice system. So for your average Canadian who is not ultra-wealthy, who is not well-connected, doesn't have the right political connections, the laws apply just as they're written. If you break the rules, you're going to be punished, according to what the law says. But if you are ultra-wealthy, if you are well-connected, if you happen to be a company like SNC-Levelin, then there's a separate track available for you and it you know what it's increasingly looking like i want to be very careful with what i say here but what it's increasingly looking like is that there are people in the halls of power that will go to bat for you that'll try to create loopholes for you and that's mm-hmm. that's to me it's completely immoral and defeats the purpose of a democracy
0: yeah so let's discuss the the SNC-Lavalin uh, uh, case a bit because it does appear that corporations or at least you know a large corporation like SNC-Lavalin that is based in 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 Quebec that they have the ability to put pressure on our government, whether directly or indirectly, just through the amount of power that they hold mm-hmm. as this massive corporation in in Canada. So um, how do you apply what happened to, to s and Lavalin? How do you apply that in the sense that it, it exposes our failure as a as a nation in terms of our uh, inability to be a moral
1: leader. I don't think that SNC exposes it. I think it just sort of adds to the pile of evidence that was already there. You know, I mentioned in the article, for example, that uh, after the Panama Papers dropped, at least to my imagination, I thought, "Oh my gosh, this is this is a complete scandal." There, you know, there are several organizations, uh, corporations, wealthy and powerful Canadians that are named in these papers uh, that have basically hidden their wealth offshore so that they're not contributing. And I thought that there probably was going to be, uh, you know, an investigation. There was going to be prosecution that the Canada Revenue Agency would go after these people. And what essentially happened was the bureaucracy and, uh, you know, the government, and I would say to some extent, the media basically mm-hmm. shrugged its shoulders and moved on. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the, uh, the the Paradise Papers dropped, which named over 3,000, again, individuals, corporations, foundations, et cetera, uh, the exact same thing happened. We were just, mm, yeah, well, I guess wealthy people don't, pay their taxes and that's just the way it is. And that's, to me, that's not a, it's not a sign of a of healthy and functioning democracy. So
0: what do you think the the problem is here? So is it, I mean, uh, I would put a lot of blame on the media. I mean, yeah. that's how I perceive it because I feel like it's it's the media's job to really push the government on these issues and inform the rest of us. But also there does seem to be a lack of a, sort of a this grassroots movement or like a, a progressive leftist movement to, to push our media and our government on these issues, whereas I feel the U.S., even though they have, you know, a long list of of problems, they do have now, at least even on a, a national scale, they have leaders like Bernie Sanders or AOC who are actually raising serious issues with the the uh, the amount of concentrated wealth and power that's in this system, and we don't even have leaders like that here. Do you think that's part of the problem as well? The United States does have a,
1: a you know a long and healthy tradition, you know, going all the way back to like Eugene V. Debs, for example, uh, of of people who will hold the wealthy and powerful to account and understand that the purpose of a government is to serve the people. In in Canada, on the other hand, and there was I believe it was the National Observer, but I could be wrong here. There was an article that recently came out, basically saying that uh, the Canadian economy is essentially managed. By a few very large conglomerates, of which SNC Lavalin happens to be one, mm-hmm. um, I would venture to say also that uh, you know the Canadian Canadian media is managed by a few very large conglomerates, of which News Talk 1010 happens to belong to one. Yep, um, and you can see how the uh, the coalescing of interests between the two parties, you know, uh, uh, certain political parties in government. Um, large corporations and large uh, media organizations—you can see how their interests align, and that's why stories I think like this go away. So until we develop uh, a health—not just you know a party system—but until we develop a healthy dialogue among politicians who operate within that party system that can
0: call the powerful to account,
1: then this is all that we can look forward to.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I I almost understand it in the sense of when it comes to to uh, to money and and corporations, but. I mean, to, to have an issue like our our arms deal with with Saudi Arabia, something that is so you can have the Im- you see the images from from the war in Yemen, and it's something hmm. that should be able to elicit some kind of reaction from people, and it's a, an issue that I, I think the media should be more focused on. But it seems like even that, even an arms deal with with the Saudis, yeah, it sort of gets brushed over. Well, look at it. Look at it this way. And uh, I'm not trying to conflate the two. I'm just uh, here's
1: what I'm saying. The, here's how I, I can best illustrate it. So. The Premier of Ontario, uh, it was either this afternoon or yesterday, but uh, yeah, it was yesterday, it was yesterday, uh, cheered on the uh, the Yellow Vest convoy that's going to be coming to Ontario. And that is what we see as being a uh, your regular working class movement, that there are people who are arguing for the building of pipelines and to be able to save jobs, which just happens again to align with large and powerful corporate interests, especially at the expense of violating uh, or possibly violating treaties. And intruding on the territories of First Nations. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you have this uh, uh, this this this, uh, this arms contract that we've had with the Saudi Arabian government that we sell them uh, light armored vehicles. And when asked whether we are going to invoke the Magnitsky Act, uh, which is basically an act that you know if a uh, foreign, if a foreign government is uh, essentially uh, killing whistleblowers uh, to uh, to prevent uh, truth and information from getting out, then essentially we uh, we levy sanctions against them. So when asked whether we're going to invoke the Magnitsky Act. Uh, to uh, cancel the purchase contract with the Saudi government. Um, Well, Minister Freeland uh, indicated that uh, we're not going to be uh, doing any more purchase contracts with the Saudi Arabian government, at least temporarily. And the prime minister says, well, see, there would be penalties in the billions of dollars and it's a lot more complicated than it sounds, which is basically just waffling and saying, yeah, they killed a journalist, but we've got got all these billions of dollars to think about and these jobs to think about. So, again, it's like, it seems to be this unidirectional conversation that everything boils down to what is in the best interests of the most powerful shareholders in this country. Mm-hmm. And if that's the way that we're going to run the country, we should just be honest about it. We're basically a corporateocracy, but if we're going to call ourselves a social democracy, then we need to act like it.
0: I'm speaking with André Dumise, the writer of the Washington Post op-ed titled, Canada is not the world's moral leader. Just look at our newest scandal. So on that note, is it possible to have moral leadership within capitalism? since capitalism is almost inherently exploitative, is it even possible to have you know, a nation like ours, or especially I mean the U.S., and, But I mean, yeah. any nation, is it possible to have more well, leadership you know, than I'm, capitalism? I'm going to take my cynical
1: hat off for a second and say, <laughs> well, there are social democracies that uh, do, I think, manage um, their relationship to capitalism uh, at least more morally than we do. I'm thinking of the Nordic model, for example. Yeah. So Scandinavian countries, uh, especially Norway, mm-hmm. which has a very large oil reserve, um, you know, it has basically a public pension system. And when companies uh, they find are engaged in underhanded or, or possibly criminal acts, uh, they just cut them out of the pension system. They say, well, you know, there are, there are companies that we're going to support, companies that we're not going to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, would, another Canadian company, uh, uh, Barrett Gold, uh, was blacklisted out of their pension system because of the, uh, the practices it was engaging in, in, in the global south. So yeah, there are ways that capitalism can be done in a moral way. I'm just very, very skeptical towards it, because what I also find, and and Mark Fisher wrote about this before his unfortunate passing, is that what capitalism does is essentially it just consumes, cannibalizes, and then reshapes itself to look like the
0: resistance to it. So take that for what it's worth. Yeah. So uh, I guess you mentioned there, I was going to ask, are there countries that that are moral leaders. Do you think the the Nordic countries are or, 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 could be looked at as moral leaders? They, the I world? mean, they have their own issues,
1: especially where it comes to uh, to immigration and um, you know uh, figuring out how it is that uh, you know uh, people who, who uh, have immigrated from other countries or people who are uh, refugees from other countries, um, how best to integrate them into society and uh, not create a marginalized group. Uh, marginalized groups. Actually, as a matter of fact. Uh, met the prince and princess of Norway a couple of years mm. ago and we had a very brief conversation about this you know how is it that you know we can we can best integrate uh, newcomers to the country and not create uh ghettos uh so every country, like there's no utopia that exists anywhere in the world mm. i just think that uh when you manage it in the sense that you're, you're looking at people um not just as voters not just as stakeholders but uh citizens and human beings who have an equal interest as companies that can throw all kinds of money at you for your uh, for your favor, if there if the interests are at least equal, if not more powerful inside of the voter, uh, the individual voter, then I
0: think that we're moving towards that morality we're talking about. So, do you see any politicians in in Canada that may uh, potentially be able to lead on this? Potentially be able to lead us towards Man, don't being. Put, don't put me in the hot spot on that one. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not here, I'm not here to, to promote politicians. So no, just... but if you if you have any fine uh, any party in mind, or a, even even just okay, what but, would you want to see
1: in a politician? Okay, so here's the thing. You know, uh, being of Jamaican background, you know, when I was when I was growing up, and I was a lifelong liberal voter until the, the last election. But you know, uh, coming from the kind of background that I came from, mm-hmm. um, people from the Caribbean, especially, are very heavily geared towards voting liberal because. It was the liberal party that uh, changed the immigration act that allowed uh, many of us and, and our parents and grandparents to move here in the first place what i what i've been seeing happen and it happened to our community and i think it's happening to a much broader extent now is simply taking voters for granted mm-hmm. i think the for example the pc party of ontario is doing the very same thing where they have a block of voters uh, that have been with them you know since the 1960s practically and they've begun to take those voters for granted to the extent now that they're antagonizing parents of autistic children. Yeah, you know, uh, do I think that there's any party that right now that that encapsulates I think that that morality that we're looking for? I don't think so. I think the Green Party is doing some very uh, good things, especially around raising uh, the alarm on the environment and mm-hmm. what it is our, our capitalist system is doing to exacerbate those problems. I think the NDP is capable of that. It's just that the party is practically eating itself right now, so it's very difficult to watch. So. I, I don't know, as, as, you know, not speaking from a political point of view, but just speaking from the average voter point of view, yeah. you know, who would I cast my ballot for? I'm finding it very difficult to figure that out right
0: now. I don't know. Yeah. Um, last question. How should we, what's the best way to maybe educate people on these issues? Because, as you said, the, the uh, voters in, for the, the PCs here in Ontario, I feel like there's a lot of misinformation, Especially, I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. being on News Talk, this is largely a conservative radio station. I get a lot of callers, a lot of messages from people who really don't understand that this party is not working in their best interest. But it's almost hard to to break through that. Do, Do you... Do You have any strategies, any way to actually speak <laughs> speak to people who may be you know largely misinformed on issues? Listen, every, every time I write a column, I get you know like a week's worth
1: of hate mail. So I don't, <laughs> if there's a way to get through to you know to, to die in the wool voters, I, I haven't figured that one out yet. but I, what I will say though is that um, at least where it comes to me having conversations with people in person and on social media, I think uh, at least from my experience, people tend to find my tone of writing way different from my tone of engaging on social media or my tone of engaging on a face-to-face basis. And I think it's just meeting people where they're at. Like, I don't, you know, I don't hate, for example, conservative voters. Yeah. I think that there are uh, many issues that the conservatives have been able to uh, obscure for your average voter that create some very weird ideas in their head, like all of the money that we're giving to indigenous people, for example, or that they don't have to pay to go to school, that we should assimilate them um, off of the reserves, uh, that, uh, you know, that, that uh, black people are given... Um, You know all kinds of advantages in the society as far as affirmative action and welfare and so forth so But these are ideas that if you don't have a lot of contact with people who don't look like you or pray like you or think like you do I I could see how it's easy to get those ideas in your head and and I think for me, you know for Having a conversation with your average working-class person to dispel some of those notions It's as simple as sitting down and just saying well, I I mean, what do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. Where did you get that idea from? Well, yeah, where's the information to prove it and not in a like a condescending and you know snobby way But just to sit down and have a face-to-face conversation with a person and and help create a better understanding that's just my approach i'm not saying that this this approach is one that anybody else has to take Mm -hmm. but the 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 discourse that i see especially online and especially in news media it's just it's confrontational on purpose it's there to Mm -hmm. create a conflict to generate you know listens and paid you know to to generate page views and clicks and so forth Mm -hmm. And I think removing ourselves from those venues and just having face-to-face and in-person conversations goes a long way. Because at least in my experience, when I talk to people that are conservative and people that don't come from my community, we, cr- we create a pretty good understanding of one another. And, and we walk away from the conversation feeling good about what we've said. Once we insert that conversation into like a social media sphere or into a, uh, you know, uh, in, in front of the, uh, the news cameras and in a debate forum, it doesn't work. It's, yeah. it's
0: not designed to work. Andre Mies is a contributing editor at McLean's Magazine and the author of the Washington Post opinion piece titled Canada is Not the World's Moral Leader. Just look at our newest scandal. Andre, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Coming up next, NDP leader Jugmeet Singh's by-election in Burnaby South is just a week away. I'll dive into the race and take your calls on what you want to see from the NDP. Give me a call at 416-872-1010. You can also text me at 71010. This is The David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010. The David Dole Show continues on News Talk 1010. Welcome back to the David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture, right here on In Depth Radio News Talk 1010. So, uh, if you missed our, uh, our the conversation I had in the last segment with Andre Dumiz, who wrote a, a great piece in the Washington Post, you should really check it out. So, it'll be uh, I'll have it online later if you follow me on Twitter at uh, David Dole, D A V I D D O E L. Uh, I'll post that up online. I just I love having conversations with people that shatter the, these preconceived notions that people have. So, I mean, as an example, I see conservatives online all the time think that Trudeau is this like crazy progressive leftist. But I mean, <laughs> these people are clearly getting their information from other conservative sources that that tell them this because it just isn't true. I mean, the Liberal Party, if you talk to a real leftist, many people will tell you that the Liberal Party is essentially conservative light, that it is also a conservative party. But we have been sort of told this lie that we, we have, you know, the, the Liberals on the left, the Conservatives on, on the right, and then, oh, the, the crazy Greens and the crazy NDP. That's not at all the situation, guys. I mean, just, just I'm just telling you, listen to this the interview I had with, with Andre. Do some basic research. You're, you will learn that... We have some serious criticisms of Trudeau, and it has a lot of it has to do with with the the concentration of 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 wealth and power. So understand here that the real divide is not left and right. The real divide is a class divide. It's the wealthy versus the rest of us. Now, this week, or I should say, in in about a week or over a week, um, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is going to have his by election in Burnaby South. So. The NDP leader has yet to uh, or doesn't have a seat yet in the House of Commons, which is kind of weird uh, <laughs> for a leader of a party to not have a seat. But he had uh, I mean, so if you followed the leadership race in the NDP, I was sort of between two people. I was between uh, Nikki Ashton and and Jagmeet Singh, though I would say at the time I, I definitely leaned to, towards Nikki Ashton. And then after the race was over. I uh, sort of warmed up to to, to Charlie Angus as well, um, but we have Jagmeet Singh now. I mean, my I'm not exactly an NDP voter. Uh, I in the past I've I've ran as a Green Party candidate, um, but I am. I mean, when it comes to voting and, and I'm in that booth, it's between the NDP or the Greens generally. So my hope is that the NDP starts getting a little more popular in in the polls and it's not it's not exactly looking too uh, great right now for the ndp but i think there is some things they could potentially do but on this on this by-election so if you have any thoughts on the ndp or even just generally what you want to see in in a leader uh, of a party in canada give me a call at 416-872-1010 you can also text me at 71010 so uh This by-election in Burnaby South that Jagmeet Singh is running in, it's it's I believe February 26th, which is about uh, eight days away. So Justin Trudeau uh, is actively campaigning in Burnaby South with Liberal candidate Richard Lee. Now Trudeau believes his party will win, saying, "quote Nobody make any mistake. The Liberal Party is going to win this riding of Burnaby South." Now. This is something that politicians do a lot. They just uh <laughs> they they say they're going to win even though they they don't win to try and rile up the base and and get people out to vote. But I mean, it does seem like Jugmeet Singh will win this by-election and if he doesn't, it's going to be interesting. So, to have a sitting leader of a party not win their by-election, not be able to to uh to attain a seat in the House of Commons. Uh, it's not quite clear what's going to happen if Jugmeet Singh loses this. So there have been some uh, discussions, some private discussions that have been exposed by by uh, various uh, insiders and media outlets, talking about how if Jugmeet Singh doesn't win, he will have to be—he'll have to step down. And someone else—and they'll somehow have to have a, a leadership race in the short time before the, uh, the election in, in the fall— it's, I mean, for the NDP's sake, not just for Jugmeet Singh's sake, but for the NDP's sake, he really has to win this election. But um, Jugmeet Singh has been getting criticism from labor leaders. So Canadian Labor Congress President Hassan Youssef, who leads the largest labor organization in Canada with 3.3 million workers, sounds worried, saying, quote, "...the federal NDP is struggling to reach members of the labor movement and Canadians in general." Also adding that, quote, I think the party is struggling with two things right now, the public. They're not resonating. The polls speak to that. It's not just me. And secondly, I think that reflects our own members' connection to the party, end quote. Yeah, so, I mean, the NDP is built on the labor movement. So if you don't have the confidence of, of high-profile labor leaders within Canada, it doesn't speak too well to your ability to be able to attain those voters uh, when it comes time to to actually vote. So there has to be something that Jagmeet Singh can do to really reinvigorate the party. And I think what he has to do really is, is be bold. So let me get into some of the things that he could potentially do. So he needs to speak more to this class divide that I was talking about. This class divide of look it's not about the left and the right it's really about the the wealthiest the the most powerful and everybody else because this is something that the conservatives will pretend to speak to the liberals will try and be everybody's friend but the ndp have to actually embrace this not just with rhetoric but with actual real bold policy so speaking to raising the minimum wage or speaking to a a more fair, progressive taxation system, or speaking to a Green New Deal, or even how about a Canadian automaker? I mean, you have these jobs lost in Oshawa. We have the ability to potentially develop a co-op in Canada where we create our own automaker. This is something that is being talked about by at least a few people (laughs) that are writing articles, but it's It's something that it may sound crazy on the face of it, but if you want to get attention, if you want people to vote for you, you have to sound a little crazy sometimes. You have to be willing to risk the fact that you may turn people off. So if you just go in there with the same just lazy bull or... uh Lazy lines of, of just, oh, we're for everybody. Oh, no, there's there's no class divide. There's no divide at all. I'm for the rich. I'm for the poor. I'm for the left. I'm for the right. It's just, it's phony. It's incredibly phony. You have to actually take positions, real positions, and, and be willing to risk votes because you're not going to be able to attain more votes if you're not going to take any risks. Also, Jagmeet Singh has to hit Trudeau hard on electoral reform. So we were promised uh, a change to first-past-the-post, this system that does not represent us. We need to actually engage in electoral reform. We need to actually move towards a system that better represents Canadians. And also, he needs to speak uh, more to expanding funding for social housing and education and prosecuting tax evaders. So my last guest, uh, uh, Andre, in the first segment, he was talking about how, you know, the Panama Papers— we had all this this information about how the wealthiest people in Canada were stashing their money offshore and nothing happened nobody was prosecuted so this idea that you know not only are the wealthy breaking the law but they can get away with it or and in the case of SNC-Lavalin you can have a corporation like SNC-Lavalin potentially putting pressure on the Trudeau government or or really any government cuz if it was the Conservative Party, the exact same thing would have happened, and we would not have known about it because the Justice Minister would have went through with it. They, they would have allowed SNC-Lavalin uh, to get away with it. But now we have the situation where we have this massive corporation potentially putting pressure on the Trudeau government, which, which in turn tries to—I mean, this idea that a corporation has fraud and corruption charges, this corporation that, that has a history, a history of breaking the law that we're just going to let them get away with a slap on the wrist with a fine. I mean, what kind of signal does that show to other large corporations or corporations and companies in general? This idea that if a small business did anything similar, they would not have gotten away with it. But if you're a large enough company, then it's okay. This idea that there are different rules for the wealthy and most powerful over everybody else. This is something that Jugmeet Singh needs to speak to. And also, I think maybe the most important point, because this is one that I actually do think appeals to, to everyone, and that's expanding our healthcare to also cover pharmacare as well as dental and mental and eye care as well. So yes, we have a universal healthcare system. Yes, it's better than you know what the Americans have, but there are so many more improvements that we can make to it. So if we just sit on our hands and, and do nothing and, and just assume that, oh, because we're better than our neighbors to the south, I mean, Dental care is something that I would love. <laughs> As somebody who, who is a freelancer, who, who does it, you know, work for a corporation that, that gives me benefits, I would love dental care. I mean, I'm just... And I know a lot of Canadians feel the same. So speaking to these issues of, of a class divide, speaking to what we can do for Canadians, Jugmeet Singh has the potential to do that. But first, of course, he has to win his by-election in Burnaby South. Coming up next, shattering the idea that millennials are lazy... New data shows that a record number of young adults are simply not being paid enough to afford housing or rent. Are you being impacted by low wages? Give me a call at 416-872-1010. You can also text me at 71010. This is The David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010.
1: You're listening to The David Dole Show. News Talk 1010.
0: Welcome back to the David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture, right here on in depth radio, News Talk 1010. So, there are uh, many misconceptions about millennials, and really the one most dominant narrative is that they're lazy and entitled. But uh, a new report from Statistics Canada proves that millennials aren't just living at home because they're lazy. Actually, the new data shows that close to 1.9 million Canadians aged 25 to 64 lived with at least one parent in 2017, which is more than double the 900,000 recorded 20 years ago. So in 1995, Canadians at home made up only 5% of adults population, uh, of the adult population aged 25 to 64. Now it's up to 9. So uh, why are these young adults living at home? Is it because video games are that much better? which they are, or is it because there's more flavors of potato chips and soda than ever before, which is also true, but no, it's actually because millennials are not getting paid enough to afford housing or rent. So 74% of these young adults living at home have paid employment, so most of them work full-time, a number that's only slightly fewer than the 80% of those not living with their parents meaning that millennials just aren't receiving the kind of pay and benefits that people their age once did. And in addition to that, the cost of housing and rent is at an all-time high. Now, I've had this—I've dealt with this issue myself. There was a time where I was laid off twice from the same tech company. Um, don't ask me how that happened. They, they laid me off one year because they couldn't afford it. Then they hired me back and then laid me off the next year. This is something that millennials face constantly. I mean, Finding anything full-time that isn't contract or freelance work is incredibly hard in a lot of industries. Now, um, things get even worse when you look at larger cities. So, for example, in the GTA, 47.4% of adults aged 20 to 34 live at home. That's almost half. So researchers at the uh, the University of Waterloo found that 79.2% of young adults living with parents do it to, of course, save money. So Nancy Wirth, researcher on the study, said that, quote, In the face of precarious work and widespread economic insecurity, parental help offers a chance to save for a house or take on the unpaid internship, which gives people living at home an advantage over those who are living on their own. Which is an important point, as a lot of young adults don't even have the option of living at home, giving them a built-in disadvantage when it comes to something like an unpaid or low-paid internship. And this also may explain why the majority of Canadians recognize the serious class divide they are facing, with a new ECOS research poll showing that a majority of Canadians support raising taxes on the wealthiest individuals. So let me uh, reference this poll. So uh, I talked a bit about this last week, but I think it's important to mention it here as well. This is something that, because we're being squeezed more and more in, as Canadians, we are supporting the idea of higher taxes on the wealthy. So, 50% of Canadians support a new 70% tax bracket for anybody making over $1 million and 69% of Canadians support a 2% wealth tax on all or, yeah, a 2% wealth tax on all personal assets over 50 million. So, because of our knowledge now and our own experiences as Canadians, a lot of us living at home with our parents because we can't afford anything else. We are now looking at policy that may have one at one time seemed extreme, but now in this new age of low paid work and crazy cost of housing, we are now more open to these ideas. Coming up next, Amazon cancels their plans for a headquarters in New York after refusing to have a discussion about workers' rights. This is the David Dole show on in-depth radio news talk 1010.
1: Welcome back to The David Dole Show on News Talk 1010.
0: Welcome back to The David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture, right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. After pushback from organizers and state officials, Amazon have canceled their plan to build a new headquarters in New York City. So Amazon was being promised 3 billion dollars in taxpayer funded subsidies for a promise of 25,000 jobs and 27 billion dollars in tax revenue. Now, on the face of it, this seems like this seems terrible for for New York and that's how a lot of the the people on TV, a lot of the millionaires are uh, <laughs> are, are are describing this. But understand here. So, I, I'm just laughing about the, this idea that the, the media are, are complaining about this because, look, there is—I'm uh, not going to name the show, but there, there's a new show in the U.S. where one of the guys on the show, he was going crazy over Amazon uh, leaving, and he was getting angry about—he was blaming the organizers, blaming unions, blaming, blaming lefties. And this guy owns real estate in Queens, and <laughs> his property values were going up. From the Amazon deal, that's why he was angry. He wasn't angry about losing the jobs, but and but this is what you have to keep in mind when you when you watch the news. Just understand who the people are that are telling you the news that they have a perspective. Now, oftentimes, look, like, it's it's different in Canada than than the U.S. largely, but I mean, when it comes to certain issues, especially when it comes to to inequality, just understand where you're getting your news from. Now. As I was saying, so there were a a lot of angry people about this, but even, I mean, a lot of New Yorkers were angry about this too, but they shouldn't be. So I'm going to try and break down why here. So first you have to understand there are other examples where this sort of deal didn't exactly work out. So Foxconn in Wisconsin, they were promised $4.8 billion in subsidies for 13,000 jobs. Now, there were photo ops with Trump, photo ops with the governor while breaking ground. Oh, this huge deal, Foxconn's coming, they're going to bring 13,000 jobs. Well, <laughs> those 13,000 promised jobs, yeah, now closer to 1,000 jobs by 2020. And they couldn't even hit the modest target of 260 jobs in 2018, only creating 178. So, deals of corporate welfare rarely, if ever, deliver as promise. So Amazon's headquarters in New York City, with $3 billion in subsidies for 25,000 jobs, was canceled. So why did Amazon run away? Now, Amazon decided to leave because they did not want to have a conversation about unions. So Amazon, if you don't know this, Amazon is a union buster. And New York City is the most unionized city in the country. In fact, so when it comes to Amazon, there's this great quote that I heard from uh, author Anand Giardatis. He calls uh, uh, Amazon's model, pee-in-a-bottle capitalism, because that's how Amazon makes their money, by exploiting their labor. So, I mean, when you think of things like same-day delivery or one-day delivery, understand how that impacts real workers. We're going to have to get to a point—at some point, we're going to have to have a a real conversation about— what is moral in our society? Is it moral to have same-day shipping if it means that an employer at Amazon can't have a break? So that's a discussion that I think we're gonna to get to. Now, but I mean, on this deal, why should the wealthiest corporations get welfare for what so many other businesses do for free? And also understand here that if Amazon had been given this deal of this this $3 billion in in taxpayer funded subsidies, it would have sent, uh, set a terrible precedent for other companies, for the future of New York City. So that would mean companies that are even in New York City now, they could threaten and say, okay, you know what? We're going to leave. We're going to leave and and take our 25,000 jobs with us unless you give us some taxpayer-funded subsidies. Or for other corporations that may consider coming to to New York City, if this deal with Amazon had gone through, they could say, well, we're only going to come to New York City if you give us the Amazon deal. So, Understand that it's not just about living in the bubble of this, oh, 25,000 jobs for $3 billion in subsidies. It's the effect that it would have on on the bigger picture. So, when it's about, so there's also actually uh, another aspect of this, and that's the impact on on the area in terms of expenses. So, when you are creating 25,000 jobs, if they did happen to create those amount of jobs, which, have, as I discussed in the past, isn't, hasn't been the case with other companies. But if Amazon did create these 25,000 jobs, are they investing enough into transit, into schools, into the fire department, into roads, into bridges, into infrastructure? So there are all these other expenses that Amazon was not talking about, that they're not going to disclose when they're trying to sell the idea of, oh, we're going to come here Give us these taxpayer-funded subsidies. It's going to be great for you because we're going to create $27 billion. billion. We're going to create 25,000 jobs. It's going to be amazing for everybody. But if you're not going to look at the actual bigger picture and how the – not only the precedent that it would set, but also the impact on the community. If you are not investing into the community, which you know currently New York wasn't, and I don't know if – if the $27 really would have been even enough if it had even gotten to that point that Amazon was actually able to generate that. So understand that there are other factors at play here. And also understand that Google and Facebook have headquarters in New York City, and you know what? What did they get? Nothing. They didn't ask for anything. So you already have these, these giant tech giants in New York City. They weren't given the special treatment why exactly should Amazon be given this special treatment? Now, on top of all of that, guess how much money in federal guess how much in federal tax Amazon paid on 11.2 billion dollars in profit last year? Zero. Amazon paid nothing in taxes on 11.2 billion dollars in profit. You paid more tax on tonight's dinner than Amazon paid on $11.2 billion. This is a company worth over a trillion dollars, with Jeff Bezos, the leader at Amazon, the richest man alive, over $150 billion. This is the idea that Amazon should be given taxpayer-funded subsidies when they are making $11.2 billion in profit is insane. You can follow me on Twitter at David Dole, last name spelled D-O-E-L, And visit me on YouTube at therationalnational.com. Thanks for listening to The David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010.